I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Dwight Turner, a psychotherapist and supervisor in Paddington and London. He's a senior lecturer at the University of Brighton and casts an intersectional lens on privilege, supremacy, otherness, and social justice. For more, please visit his website, dwightturnercounseling.co.uk. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l your support is greatly appreciated for more information you can also visit my website drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast main website renderingunconscious.org Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Um, I think having listened to your podcast in, in, in the past, I know you know, your, your, your um, guests, I call them guests, Talk about a bit about their, their, you know, what's brought them to psychotherapy and so on. That always seems to strike me as a good place to start. Um, I guess in my case, the aim was never to become a psychotherapist at all. It was, you know, having had a few years of therapy myself back in my what late twenties, um, after the end of a relationship, I then decided to do some self-development work for a year. Had a place in the Centre of Counselling and Psychotherapy Education in London, uh, which is a, a transpersonal centre, um, and at the end of that chunk of year of, of, of that year um i decided that actually i quite like studying because i didn't actually go to university when i left school um my schooling life ended at 16 or 18 in whichever way you put it and i, I did other things in, with, with my life and then coming back to study again i thought well let's see how far i go um so, so i started becoming a, th- a therapist in my early 30s stayed and I guess the rest is sort of history. Everything sort of exploded since then from you know, becoming a supervisor to lecturing to writing to doing a doctorate to where I'm sat right now talking to yourself in, a mo- in the morning um, about career and life. So the aim was never to become a therapist. It's more like I've fallen into it, but I wouldn't change it for the world. Sometimes life just takes you in some unusual directions and that's always brilliant to follow. Exactly. You just have to go with it. I feel like a lot of my uh, clients that are like, you know, college age or something, they feel like they've already missed out because they, they're not on this like career path trajectory. And I just try to like show everyone like what makes you so unique is like all these kinds of twists and turns mm. that happen in life. And then you end up putting things together that like no one else has or that you never imagined mm. you would. And that's what kind mm. of ends up being your niche in the world. 
Mm, I totally agree with that. And I suppose the other side is those who do try and shoehorn themselves into, into okay, I'm going to do this because I'm 20 years old. And that's what I've been told I should do. Then come back when they're 40 saying, well, actually, I'm not happy with that. And, you know, what, what, you know, what is my life's purpose? Then they discover it then. So I totally agree with you. Yeah. Will you say more about transpersonal psychology? I thought you might ask me that. No problem. I can say a bit more. Yeah, of course. Of course. Well, the transpersonal um, takes into account the spiritual aspect of a human's, uh, human's identity, basically, or a person's identity. So we don't just look at the psychological, but we also look at, okay, what is our soul nature? What is, you know, how do we relate to um, either our religious self or our spiritual self, whatever it might mean? You know, for example, Jung was very uh, keen on, especially in his later works, looking at the spiritual meaning of dreams, um, the symbolic meaning of things, and so on. And plenty of other theorists uh, looked at the spiritual as well. You know, even Carl Rogers went on retreats. And, you know, what he learned from his retreats, retreats actually informed lots of his later works, which doesn't always sit within the mainstream uh, person-centered ways of working, but did it resonate for him. So the transpersonal takes into account that actually we all have a soul and, and how do we access our soul's purpose. Come back to your earlier point about you know, meandering through life. Sometimes we're, we're, we're guided in certain ways. Yeah, I love that. And I also feel like also this kind of collective aspect that humanity is evolving together in some way. And I feel like that kind of point of view could be really helpful right now with what the world is going through, you know? Yeah. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, with, with a global pandemic, we're all being challenged to, to develop and to learn in some ways, in ways we haven't seen for several generations in the West, especially. In other parts of the world, probably they have, but here in the West, no. So I think you're right, that sort of collective understanding of, okay, what is the meaning of this experience that we're going through? You know, climate change is another one of those. Okay, there's a collective, um, we're changing, we're developing, hopefully for the best, and you know, time will tell with that, but what does that actually mean? What is our, our purpose in that respect? Yeah, and I also noticed on your site that you have people bring in music. Music that they uh, like that resonates with them. I love that. Well, it's a great thing to, it, you know, it's, well, it's well, it does fit in with the trans person in a way that we all have a connection to music. Um, be it the music we listen to or, or we play. You know, I was an awful pianist when I was in my teenage years. Um, yeah, I used, my mother used to take me for lessons like you do, I suppose, as a child. I was never very, I was never the best student. But what I did love, um, even from that early age was just a connection to different genres of music uh, as I grew up. So, and, and how this came up was, how this, you know, the, the, the paper that you saw on my website, how that came about was in my masters, I did a project on looking at the music we listen to and we hear in our dreams and so on, and what that's, how that speaks to us and how that speaks to our own sense of, sense of self at very moments in our lives. Um, for example, for example, my own life, I remember when I finished my doctorate, that you know, I did, did mine in about five and a half years. And it was a tough five and a half years. And I remember at the very end, um, actually falling down, well, not, li not literally falling down, symbolically falling down into a, a um, I was quite ill for a few days, feverish and so on. And one of the nights I heard a, a, a song lyric. Um, what was it called? It was, the, the lyric went, never again is what you swore the time before. Um, and I just woke up slightly delirious and think, well, what in the world is that all about? I could hear the lyric and I knew it's a song. I had to go and look it up. And it's a Depeche Mode song, um, which is called Policy of Truth. Now, I don't have a huge connection with Depeche Mode. I love their, I like their music, totally appreciate it. But I have to say, the live version of that Policy of Truth song is an absolute banger. It's, it's brilliant. Um, 
And the lyrics themselves said an awful lot about where I was at that moment. I was never going to do a doctorate again. I would never do anything like that again. It's actually, you've been through that process. You know how strenuous and tough it is. Um, and it, it was my psyche talking to me, if you like. And you know, sometimes we do hear music in dreams. I, I, I quite often do. In the way it's a connection to the unconscious, it connects to the spiritual. Um, and I love it for that. But. Yeah, sometimes I feel like grad school is like a hazing process. They're like, if you can mm. get through this, then you get to be this thing. <laughs> yeah. I think you're quite right. You're like, yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, then you let out, and it's like, well, actually, then the work starts. I, I've done like that massive piece of research. I've sat through a vibe. I've done several conferences, and now I'm an academic, and the world opens up, if you're lucky. Um, and it, it, you're quite right. Hazing is a great way of putting it. It's, it, it's you're molded week in, week out to be this thing, um, this, this academic thing. And it's tough, but it's not easy at all. Yeah, it was really tough. And I, uh, I, did, I don't have parents that could help support me. So I was like waitressing full time at night and going to classes during the day. And I don't, yeah, at the end, I was like, how did that even happen? Like, what year is it? I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> totally understand, because yeah, like, like yourself, I. I was married, I was working full time, I was running my practice. Um, wow. I was trying to carve out time to actually sit and do the research because I was doing the research part time. And you know, I, I often say to people when they come along and say, okay, how do you do a, a, a doctorate? How do you do it? How do you go, to, go through grad school? I often talk about being organized and being structured and hitting your boundaries or hitting your, your targets. Supervisors tend not to set targets, and I get why. I don't think it's for them to do so. But I think that for myself, what, what some of the things that helped was me setting my own targets and trying to hit them each time. Now, sometimes I didn't want to do any work that day. I'd go up and watch a movie or read a book or just sit in the park. Great. But if, as long as I ticked something off each week, then I felt I was getting somewhere and, and, that, and it paid off in the end. Um, you know, we had, you know, I was married at the time and we had a baby midway through. And I remember saying to my, this is the flip side, I remember saying to my supervisors, oh yeah, I'm going to take two weeks off. I'm just going to take a couple of weeks off. I'm going to come straight back. Oh, I'll be fine. My supervisor just looked at me and went, mm-hmm. And the result was, you know, my baby arrives. I fall in instant love with this little bundle and so on. Six months later, I'm still there just playing with this child. And, and I wouldn't change that for the, for the world. At some point, I had to get back on that doctoral horse, put it that way, and I can complete. But I needed that time out as well, even just to come back into life, to be honest. So. Absolutely. Yeah, I had a friend who had the baby while we were in school, and our school actually would only give her three or four weeks off. And they said if she took more time off, uh, she wouldn't be able to continue in the program, which I thought was really <laughs> insane. <laughs> yeah, really unfair as well. How I, I'm going to ask, did she did she come back in? And, and yeah, she she only went out a few weeks, and then she came back. Oh, I think dear. it's really See, not good for babies. I think, especially being psychologists, you learn developmental yeah, psychology yeah. the first year is so important. So I think it's really important. Structurally, in general, society mm -hmm. needs to start mm -hmm. giving parents more time off that first year because babies would be so much, uh, feeling so much more trustful of the world if they were mm -hmm. with their parents for the first year. I totally agree, 100% agree. It's... it's... I totally, I, I can't, I'm actually still slightly stunned by that for, for the three weeks. Um, I totally agree with you that actually, that, 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 yeah, we need, to be, we need to value the family unit a lot more and, and the, the importance of having um, you know, both parents 
in and around that child. It's such an essential stage of development, those early years. Um, and yet here in the West, you know, a good number of countries, they don't, you know, a few weeks seems to be the, the norm. It's not, you know, even you know, here in the UK, what is it, six months paid and, and seven months unpaid after that, or, or at a lower rate than that, which it's just not fair, ultimately. And, you know, it's, as, because of the work that we both, we both do and watching my own sort of child grow up and, and feel attached and then having to miss parents when they go back to work and so on. You know, my daughter was fine going to a nursery and so on, but I still think even then, she went at, she was about a year old. That's really early to be separated from, from her mother to then have to go and sit with somebody else and so on. Um, and some children are just not ready. And that, you know, as a society, society we don't, support that enough in my view we, we're so keen on keeping i'll start to get political in a minute keeping capitalism going and not and less so about okay the family unit which is needed to ground people's lives in order to keep capitalism going that makes sense exactly it would be an investment in the society yeah. overall if everyone had that time to invest because like like you said the first the first years are so important in building like a sense of trust with the world and yeah everybody would i feel like be functioning even better if we could do that totally agree yes and even things like this when something like a pandemic pandemic hits you know i suppose it's very interesting how early attachment patterns i'm sure, I'm sure for a lot of people have been triggered by actually their world isn't safe right now so what's one way of managing that by grabbing everything off the shelves, all the loo roll, the pasta, whatever else, and hiding it and hunkering down. So for me on one level, that says an awful lot about where people are within their own attachment model, if you like. For myself, um, I didn't actually find it that bad coming into you know, in the, in the pandemic. I actually sort of decided, okay, before the UK government decided we're gonna lock down, I actually had a week off anyway from, from work. And I thought, oh, okay, this is what I'm gonna do because it's same for me and for my, my, my clients and for my family and, and so on. So I'm going to manage things. So I took responsibility for, for it that way around. And I was less panicked by it. Um, and in a way, I just saw it as a, a very long retreat, a spiritual retreat. Probably it's gone on a bit too long now, but it's, it's, it's yeah, it, it, it was something I could learn from the process. Um, but I saw it that way around. But I know a lot of people, other people you know, around who thought the world was literally coming to an end. So... There's an awful lot, really, about where we're at. Yeah, I've, I, uh, I have a lot of friends who are like shamanic practitioners, and uh, mm. a few of them were in this uh, kind of, they called it the shamanic summit. It was like a sh shaman mm. conference, which was really amazing to get to listen to. Uh, and someone, I have to look up her name. She was so amazing. Uh, she was a yeah, yeah. And she, uh, she said that the Mother Earth has put us in time out. <laughs> she said she sent us to our rooms we're all in our rooms right now and when we come back out we better behave <laughs> <laughs> well she'll do it again i quite like that actually i, I do like it and i wouldn't be surprised in an, in an interesting way there's something of there is there are lessons to learn and i don't think i imagine certain countries i'm just not willing to learn them. there's that sense of um I think certain types of people, certain countries believe they have dominion over the earth as opposed to believing that they're actually in relationship with it. And hence, you know, people wanted to open up economies sooner and that sort of stuff. Let's get back to work, all those sorts of things, as opposed to, okay, recognizing that things have changed and you can't go back to doing things the same way you were doing them beforehand. Simple things like 
you know, I, I'm not a great one for riding bicycles. I don't live in London, so I've got a bit more space and so on. Um, but I actually decided to try and buy a bicycle because I thought, okay, it's a nice way to get around town and so on. It's a bit more green, more exercise and stuff like that. I couldn't for love nor money buy a bicycle here in the UK for weeks. I actually got, I had to go and get one secondhand because everyone's just buying up. Every, I think lots of people have thought the same sort of thing. We're not going to travel by public transport or in cars. We're going to do things differently. And actually, I thought, that's not a bad thing in a way. Maybe perhaps there are those, those chunks of people who thought, this needs to change. I need to be a bit different in my, in my world. How can I do that? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I hope we come out of time out having learned our lesson. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, and you mentioned your work on social justice. Will you talk about that? Yeah, I can. Um, probably for several hours, if you let me. Um, <laughs> I suppose that's the other thing about, um, I, well, yeah, we've all seen the news. You know, uh, lockdown starts, then like a month later, George Floyd is murdered in Minneapolis in the States. And, um, you know, as a black man, my whole world, you know, I, I, I was, I was, I, I was thinking a lot of fair amount of work around social justice anyway. I feel like I've been drawn towards it just through the work of my doctorate and so on. Um, and what sort of started to happen, I was asked to write a blog about the George Floyd thing. I was just sort of reluctant to do so. And went to bed one night, um, woke up in the middle of the night, made the mistake of watching clips on YouTube which is always a bad thing to do. Um, well, maybe not always. And was just furious watching, you know, clips of George Floyd being replayed over and over again, seeing some of the, the, the distressing scenes out of the States and across the world of the protests and some of them, feeling actually, you know what, Dwight, you have a voice. And at something like four, half past four, five in the morning, I just felt I couldn't just sit there and say nothing. So I remember writing two and a half thousand words and sending it to a colleague around what it's like to be a black man in the UK. It's no, it's no different. You know, being stopped in the streets is no different. We've just had a, a situation a couple of weeks back where a British policeman was you know, caught on camera with his knee on somebody's neck. And it's, it's, these aren't new events. You know, Stephen Lawrence was murdered, what, 27 years ago, 25, 27 years ago in, the U, in, in London, in the UK. So these things haven't changed and the idea that that um we, you know we we've watched brexit happen here in the uk which is very much about the vilification of otherness of refugees flooding the country to come and sponge off the state and all those sort of sort of nonsensical arguments which then leads us to withdraw from the eu and start to close our borders and all sorts of strange things have gone on we're living in an age of nationalism and um individuality but there's still an, an awful lot of oppression of minorities that goes with that that goes within that um and i for me the george floyd scenario was a final straw if you like to having to just sit and keep banging on the door saying actually this needs to end now so since then been writing you know podcasts like on this one with yourselves today um I seem to be inundated with requests for, for, for training courses, like so many of which I just can't take on because I'm just too busy at the moment. Um, and there, there are, you know, I'm just trying to do my small part to raise awareness of, of 
what it's like to be black in a very white world. The idea that actually we can't... One of the things that, that, that um, interactions with, with authorities, including the police, teaches us is that actually we can't be fully ourselves in the world. We have to conform to ways of being. What those are, we often don't know. And if we even get it wrong, then we're punished for it in some way, even though we don't really know what the, what the rules of the game are supposed to be. Um, and you know, oppression works that way. It works to silence, it works to marginalize, it works to, you know, to, to, to you're telling people to have patience that things will change. Is that is in, the, in a way, it's a form of oppression, unless there's actual efforts made to, to, to bring that change to, 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 to fruition then it's actually just another form of, of, of oppression. Um, and, you know, the microaggressions that we all have to endure on a, on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis, they, they're never-ending and they're quite painful. And that's the other part of, of watching the whole George Floyd thing. Everything that I've probably been through in my 51 years on the planet, all those traumas, incidents that have been repressed within my own psyche, then come to the surface. And that's the other side, having to deal with my own sort of, let's call it a racial trauma um, of, you know, being, having people cross the road or, or having people call you out in a, in a shop for something you haven't done or said or whatever else, or being bar- or being thrown out of a nightclub for nothing. I just stood there with some friends and being thrown out of a nightclub for no reason at all. Nothing's ever explained to you. All these sorts of strange things. Oh, you just look like we had a report. You look like you fit the report. Get out. Well, that's that sort of thing. These things that go on, being told that I look like a bouncer as a psychotherapist instead of a psychotherapist. It, it's, yeah, these things go on. Um, and it's hard, hard work. Uh, you know, but it's one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm glad about at the moment is that this is not just, people are saying it's not just an American problem. It's a global issue that needs to be confronted and challenged. Uh, hence, the protests in Germany that I've seen online, hence the protests here in the UK, um, which, you know, they're not, people aren't all wandering around toppling statues into, into, the, into the canals. There are plenty of peaceful protests, but they're all saying, they're the same thing. actually, this is, this is enough. It's up now, I suppose, up to now for the politicians to actually take this on board and to see that this is not just a moment. The politician who said that knows I'm calling them out. Um, this is something that needs to change. And if, it, if, it, if, it, if there's not a willingness to change, then what you actually risk happening is more conflict. And that's, that's not me saying I'm going to go on the streets and, and jump up and down on, on cars. What you actually end up doing is you, you, you um, if when, in expecting people to wait, what actually happens is you build up a, a you, you stifle their fire. And at some point, that fire has to come through. It doesn't want to, but it will do. Now, one of the things that Martin Luther King and, and John Lewis, who passed away sadly just last week, did that was very was brilliant, was they took that fire and used it peacefully. For me, those sorts of actions are an expression of the desire for change that makes sense and unless there is change i think that fire will come out in distorted ways if people are not careful sadly
Absolutely. And I, I can't help but look, think of it like a social psychological symptom. It's like yeah. when you repress something or like you said, a race, this could be a racialized trauma like that, but like a systemic mm -hmm. racialized trauma mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. like you repress it or repress it and pretend it's okay or that it's past or that it's not really an issue anymore, whatever people have been trying to do. And mm -hmm. uh, the unconscious wants to be heard. History, mm -hmm. the ancestors want to be heard. They're going to be mm -hmm. heard. So either address it in like a, you know, way where we're like, okay, we're going to look at it and be like very um, aware about it or else it's just going to keep bursting out because it needs mm -hmm. to be addressed. You can't just push down trauma and pre pretend, think it's going to go away. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. I totally agree. And, and come back to your point about um, Mother Earth and, and, you know, and so on. And this is the same sort of thing. Society is evolving, it is changing, it will change. And like we go through processes of, of transformation uh, as, as a psychologist, as psychotherapists. And a friend of mine used, used a, an interesting phrase, I can't remember the exact phrase, I'm going to paraphrase it slightly, um, about the process of transformation that we all go through in our therapies and, and whatever else. He said something online, you can either walk this route with dignity or you can be dragged along it by your foot. Something along those, those lines, which I probably have tweeted, tweeted it slightly, I must admit. Um, but I think this, this is where if you ask people to wait, when you know that change is coming, then change is going to be painful. But if you look at it and you embrace it and recognize, okay, this is like spotting the signs, like you mentioned earlier on. If we can spot the signs of the change and recognize, okay, we need to move to this or whatever it comes to be, then actually we're in concert with the world, planet, society, the, the, need, the need for internal, unconscious, archetypal change. It's when we don't listen to it that actually then, like you said, the unconscious bangs on the door really quite loud. But the flip side to that for me is we often talk about you know, egoic structures as if they're um, sort of benign and, and soft and cuddly in some way. Sometimes that's what people have. But actually, it's really quite, they're really quite aggressive. So for me, the, the conflict between the two can be um, really quite um, dramatic confrontational, um, powerful in, in, in some ways. This is it's my earlier point. Either the, the ego and the, and the unconscious can work together or the ego can resist change and then there's a huge conflict which comes. Absolutely. You know, the ego can be very defensive yes. <laughs> and rigid yeah. and wanting to keep things the way it is so that it can maintain mm -hmm. itself. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> that's one of the things I think that psychotherapy psychoanalysis helps with is kind of like loosening that a bit so that there can mm. be structural change like in the individual um, mm -hmm. rather than just having those defenses be so intense and rigid mm -hmm. I mean that's a, that's a very good point and often um, I know, you know we're, we're, we're trainees and they're often wondering okay well this person's not changing why they're not changing and I often say well hang on remember your clients have come in um, they want to change, but they also come in with every defense they've built against said change. So they've survived over many years before your therapy with their defenses. And it's actually about understanding the defenses to change um, before you even get to that change. So I think you're quite right. When we understand those defenses, then we can, um, then that, that empowers the, our clients, our society, to actually look at how society can change. I think another way, you know, for example, if I look at it on a, on a, on a grander level, on a larger level, um, you know, Robin DiAngelo's book on white fragility, if you like, we look at this from a racial perspective, 
for me, I know it's, written, it's not written from a psychotherapeutic perspective, but for me, it talks a lot about the collective psychological defense against change, which gets tweaked whenever we talk about issues of race, if that makes sense. Um, and I think one of the, one of the, the, the good things about, the, about that book is it opens the discussion around what are these defenses about? Okay, what, what is it that, that's triggered a sense of shame or guilt or anger that will inevitably come up whenever we're, we're challenged psychologically to, 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 to evolve, to change, to actually incorporate aspects of our own shadow. Ooh, can you talk about that some more? I can try. Um, it's, I think, I, I talk to you, I two roots. Hegel himself talks about society as, as, as okay, it evolves. Yeah. Culture evolves, society evolves, but he also talks about it as not being a straight line. I think it's quite right. Things meander, it's like a meander, a river that meanders down towards the sea. And as long as it will go back on itself and because it's defended against something, it can't quite, where it's way through something. I think if we're looking at it from a racialized level, um, one of the things I've noticed about discussions around race, for example, is that if you do that in a, in a, in a group, and we say we talk about whiteness or, or blackness, what often happens is there's a defensiveness which comes out more so on also the, the, the white side. It, it, you know, tears come up sometimes or, or anger, which, and people walk out, I've heard all sorts of stories like that. Um, and those who are, who are, say, black on the other side of the divide, then don't feel heard, they don't feel seen. So actually what it does is it reinforces the divide between the two groups. The problem with that, with, the, with, with one of the problems with working with race in such a way is there's a, a there's a, a, one has to hold the unconscious process in the group. It's not, race has never been just a black problem. It's actually been a, a problem of collectiveness, if, if you like. It's a white and black problem, if that makes sense. And unless both groups are there to look at their own, um, uh, how they bought into the, I think Fanny Brewster puts this beautifully, the racial complex that's co-created between both groups, then actually what you get is then the defensiveness. Then you can, you know, once, once, once they're whole, then you can actually look at, okay, how can we learn from this? How can we grow? How can I hear what a person of color is saying from their angle? so that I can actually see them as, as, as a human being and less as a, whatever the stereotype is that I had in my head. In my head. And how can a person of color actually take back or start to take back some of their power that actually resides perhaps in whiteness so that they can self-identify and work out what it is for them to be black in some way. So the two for me work hand in hand. Mm. That's beautifully put. What are you working on now? What am I working on now? Ah, yes. I am, hopefully this, at the time of recording this, I'm trying to finish off a book. Um, and I'm due to submit yeah, in the next couple of weeks. So that book, is, it's actually takes, it, um, so I do a lot of reading and work around intersectionality and bringing in, intersectional approaches into psychotherapy, especially around things like social justice. The book that brings that into the world of psychotherapy. So. I submit in the next few weeks. I will send that away. I will take August to sleep for a month, probably. Um, and other things I'm working on at the moment, I have um, a couple of uh, chapters in books coming out, hopefully in the next four to six months. Um, one on race uh, and one on identity. Um, and a couple of introductions to, to one on a, on a lovely book strange title um 
what's it called? It's called Carl Rogers Councils of Black Clients. And they're, re they're reproducing this one for, for a modern audience that I've written the introduction for, and it should be out very soon. That'll be out um, uh, very shortly. And just, I'm trying not to do too much writing as well. But in the autumn time, I'm not going to work too much. So it's mainly the book, a couple of chapters, and other podcasts. And so just a book and a couple of chapters. Yeah, just a couple of chapters every now and again. Just throw those in there. I'm very well when I say that. People look at me like, a couple of chapters? You work for it. <laughs> for me, that's the thing. I used to love writing. I always love writing. So for me, it's not, I don't find it so difficult to write. So I say that now, but as we get into the autumn, as things progress, I'll probably find something else to, to, to write about. So we'll see. Yeah, I saw on your feed that you're taking a break. And I fully support breaks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so same here. Self-care is huge. Um, one of the things I've worked out, it's been, that's one of the strange things about the pandemic as well. Working from home, um, yeah, okay, I had some time from Easter uh, to look after my, 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 spend time with my daughter. But I think one of the things I've realized as well is it's actually been slightly more tricky taking a break during this period because it, it can feel a bit like I'm at home so therefore I'm on holiday but actually I'm not I'm actually working very hard and you know with all we talked about trauma a lot in, in, in this morning and I think one of the other reasons for taking a, a longer break than I normally would do is actually just to come back to myself I need to you know go and sit on the seafront or or take some bike rides spend time with friends just do regular things and not have to fight the good fight all the time it's tiring um visiting all this material um, it's necessary, but it's, it's hard work. It's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My psychoanalytic supervisor years ago made me take two weeks off one August. And I was like, what do you mean? I, I didn't even realize I had never taken two weeks off before he was literally like, you have to do it. And he's like, it's for you and your patients. You have to yeah. take two weeks off. And I was like, I didn't, it was amazing to see how like terrified I was. I was like, how can you take two weeks off? How do you mm -hmm. pay rent if you take two weeks off? What am yeah. I going to do? And I survived and all my patients survived the two weeks. <laughs> and now I try to do that more regularly. But I think exactly like you said, being home right now with the pandemic, mm -hmm. I, I, I literally think I have clients like every day now because I'm like oh it's just a couple hours in the afternoon and but it's like every day I don't think I've had a day off in I don't know how long <laughs> and you, you know, you know, it does add up I think you're quite right we don't think I just that it eats into fa into family time oh, I'll see them in the evening because I'm not traveling to work or anywhere else I've got that extra hour free but like you said it, it, it adds up um and we're where are we now it's just in July we're literally four and a half months into all this. Um, and that's a long time, even for me, not to have a break. So a bit like yourself, my supervisor's always telling me to take take a break, take a longer rest, yeah, do nothing. So I've actually, strategic, I can't even say the word, strategically planned to take some time out, got some books to read. I've got some days of doing nothing. Um, actually, one thing I have started to do a lot more in the, over the past few years is actually go on retreat, which I love to do, for, at least at the very beginning of my, of my holiday. So... I can actually start my holiday feeling a bit more centered and refreshed. This year, I can't go away because of the pandemic. Um, so I normally go off to a, to a religious or spiritual center. But what I will do this year is just do it at home. No social media, turn off the phone, and just spend a bit of time in myself and, and do it that way around. So, so I think it's essential for, for that, that. Yeah, to connect with myself, put it that way.
Absolutely. One of the best things I've ever done for myself was go on like a four day uh, retreat that mm. was just being in silence where you didn't read mm. or write or talk mm. or do anything with words. That was mm. like really, really fascinating. I love those. I love silent retreats. Um, I've done a couple over the years. I my last one wasn't silent, but I have done them in the past. And they're really, they're great because it's, it's so interesting how we communicate without words. And a, a different, you know, I was there with a group of people and you see a different part of somebody else when, in those moments. And it's, it's, it's lovely to watch. To watch. Um, but also the dreams, you know, my dreams that, that came through were really quite rich and um, vibrant and, and taught me an awful There were messages that I needed to hear in that sort of silent space. Um, yeah, as was it in the I Ching? Remember once, one dream was of me getting into a hot air balloon and flying across a huge, uh, I don't know, sea in some way. So that, that process of transformation was coming through that, through just being within myself and you know, just watching the world drift along beneath me whilst in that silent space was brilliant for me. So I do try and do it more often now. Um, I think as I'm getting older, it probably will play a larger part in my life. And I wish I could do more silent retreats. That's the other part. So they don't have so many down where I am. So I've got to find some more of those. Let's talk more about dreams. I saw you wrote a lot about dreams in your site as well. Yeah. Uh, dreams, the Royal Road to the Unconscious. Um, it's, well, I've loved dreams. You know, since studying sort of being a psychotherapist, what, 20 years ago, I loved the whole idea about dreams being a like a guiding principle you know something from the soul that speaks to us that um helps us to become who we're guided to be i guess and one of the things that my therapy in those early days taught me was to actually listen to the power of my dreams and you know i've had some yeah sometimes i just had some very routine everyday boring dreams and that's fine nothing wrong with that but every now and again i have some very powerful nearly archetypal dreams. I remember once, you know, sometimes I talk about one of the street where I was um, in Africa on the edge of Victoria Falls. And the dream actually, I'm not going to tell you the whole dream, it's a bit long, but the dream talks about me jumping off the edge of Victoria Falls, um, landing on a platform, speaking, seeing some people there who, who look at me and then walk away and then I, I jump again. And I receive a message of everything is going to be fine. And you know, I took it to a number of therapists that I had at the time, over, over the years, and they told me different things about the dream, some which were relevant. You know, there was, in the dream, there was a water wheel to one side of the, of the platform. And there is actually a power station um, on the Zambian side of Victoria Falls, uh, on, on the Zambezi. So that, that represented power. But somebody also said to me, well, maybe you need to go. Maybe that's something you need to do, you need to go and visit Victoria Falls. So one year I did actually go ahead and do that. I went, it, it became a bit of a pilgrimage for myself. I actually wasn't going to fly into Zambia because it was too expensive. I didn't have the money at the time. So I was still studying to, to, to do my, my, my master's. I didn't have any money back then. Um, so I flew into Dar es Salaam in Tanzania and took a train across country, buses down into Zambia, and did it that way around and ended up at Victoria Falls. And it was one of the most powerful um, emotive experiences, just sitting there on my own in front of this enormous um, uh, stretch of water plummeting down in front of me. It's a beautiful scene if we get the chance to go. And, you know, I was really quite emotional when I finally got there, realizing that what that dream meant to me 
in a way. That actually, in a way, symbolic nature, I was home. There's that part of it as well. I, I'd, come, I'd come back home. That's so amazing. for me, dreams mean an awful lot. And I, I, um, I literally try and write down every dream that I have. I don't always get it right because sometimes I'm just, you know, just have to get up and go to work or, or, or I'm, I'm too, too tired and I fall back to sleep. But I, you know, there are, I have hundreds of dreams. I will probably never be able to decipher them all. Maybe I don't need to. Maybe after I've gone, somebody else can do it. I'll give them to my daughter. I'll give her a job to do for several years. Um, and, but I, I love tracking them when I get the chance. So, yeah. And also for my clients as well. One of the things I love to do, do with clients is, is to work, you know, use free, free association techniques with them, whereby we look at the symbolic meaning of the dream symbol for them. Um, or even using something called active imagination, where using the imaginal world and visualization and metaphor, we, we, we take a person back through the dream. So they're literally walking through the dreamscape in their own mind's eye, so to speak. And then they'll start to pick out associations and we can work with the body a bit. Well, so how does that part feel and so on? What does that part maybe need? And we'll work within the dreamscape that way around. But yeah, I, I, dreams hold a huge, I have a huge love of dreams, put it that way. Um, and respect their power and wisdom immensely. Me too. I love that idea of walking through the dream because I always mm. try to write down my dreams like in the present tense. So mm. a supervisor mm. at some point told me to do that and I found that really mm. helpful. But I love that idea of kind of recreating the scene and like how does it feel or smell or like getting all the senses involved. Mm. Mm. Because you're quite right. Yeah, when you write something down, you can't always catch that. But going back through the dream, it's quite it's interesting how much comes back into, into awareness around the dream, certain colors or whatever else, or, or who else is there and what they're wearing, all these little details that you might have, we might have missed in writing things down. And those can be really quite important. So yeah, they tell us so much, I think, about you know, where we need to be and how we need, how we need to be. But sometimes it, can, sometimes it can just be about processing the day's material, which is great. Um, but sometimes, for those of us who have dreams, there's a deeper meaning that we need to be aware of as well yeah i have a very vivid vivid dream life <laughs> which i love you dream, every, you dream every night do you or, or? yeah mm -hmm, for sure i'm same as you sometimes if like especially if i use an alarm clock if i use an alarm clock then it tends to make me forget what i was doing in my dream yeah. but if i'm able to wake up naturally then um then it, that doesn't happen so much and I can remember and through this pandemic I've been able I've been waking up I wake up pretty early anyway so I haven't mm. been using an alarm clock this past couple of months and it's been really great for dreams mm. I think you're right the pandemic um I was talking to somebody else about it the other day it seems to have kicked off a lot of very rich dreams for all sorts of people maybe sometimes people who don't normally dream and I think, you know, I know there are studies going on, for example, at the center that I trained at, uh, the Center for Cancer and Psychotherapy Education, the CCPE, they have a Dream Research Institute. And one of the projects that they're running at the moment is to look at pandemic dreams and what might be coming out of that message. So come back to your earlier point around, okay, how is, you know, Mother Earth, how is the environment, you know, what, what are the messages that, she, that are actually coming through our dreams that we need to be aware of with regards to the wider environment? Um, and that I think the pandemic will reveal some quite interesting unconscious facts when we start to analyze these things. 
Yeah, my friend Fernanda Magallanes, who's in Mexico City, she's been, she has like a blog where she's collecting people's dreams uh, that are related to the pandemic and, and what's going on. That's been really fun. I can link to that. So maybe you're interested or people uh, that listen are interested in that. You'll love this too. When I was in New York, um, I, it started through my psychoanalytic institute because we also had like a dream center there that, mm -hmm. that one of the older analysts ran. Um, but we worked with this museum called the Rubin Museum, which uh, had a lot of like Tibetan artifacts and Buddhist artifacts. And uh, we did these dream overs once a year where people would get to sleep in the museum and the, the, they would, when they um, booked their reservation for the mm -hmm. evening, the, the curators would ask them a few questions like colors that resonated with them or like really important childhood experiences or that sort of thing. And then based on the person's answers, they picked an artwork to have them sleep underneath. And there were these like, you know, amazing like green Taras and Buddhas and like wheels oh, and, wow. you know, of course, all these incredible artifacts. Yeah. And then, and then me and my like psychologist friends would kind of wake them up in the morning really early like 5 a.m and sit mm. next to them and be like you know did you dream tell us about your dreams and we like help them go through the dreams that they had and some mm. people of course didn't and were frustrated or had trouble sleeping on the floor in the museum mm. with a bunch of people but most people had like really interesting dream experiences and I did that for I don't know five or six years it was really amazing wow I can imagine oh, I were the dreams really, did they, did they connect with the artwork in, in many ways or? That's fascinating. It was really cool. How do you make, so I sort of want to, oh, I know a lot more about, about that, I have to hear about that, about that another time. But the artwork, because art, had, it's, you know, there are certain properties that artwork because they're so old and they're so, they're, they're, they're steeped in so much history and so on. Does that, that must come through the dreams, I guess, is that what? Yeah, and especially these were like Buddhist artifacts. So they were like yeah, things sure. that people prayed prayed upon or like worshipped in a way. Like sometimes even like like I remember this one specific Tara like stepped down from her platform and like spoke to the to the dreamer. Oh, I got the chills just talking about it. Yes. Like talked to her about like apparently, you know, mentioned her daughter's name and I don't know, mm. it's like a whole mm -hmm. Yeah, it was amazing. This is the power of that message from a from a godlike figure. I can't. Yeah, that's stunning. Probably should be more of that in this country as well. Well, once the pandemic's over, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's what I was thinking when I moved to Sweden. Maybe I could do that somewhere here uh, at a comparable museum. They just had to have, you know, they had to have their security there all night, basically, to make sure everything mm -hmm. was safe. And then afterwards, uh, also before people went into the the dream. Um, they had a Tibetan monk come and do like a meditation with everybody before to kind of mm, get them mm. in the right headspace. Mm. And then afterwards, after all the dreams were collected, like every floor of the museum met in a little like process group and everybody could kind yeah. of talk about their experience with one another. That's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Oh, do they still run it or they don't do it anymore? I think so. I'm not sure. I left New York in 2017, but I did it all the way up till I left. So I think I did it from like 2011 to 17, mm. maybe even 2010 to 17. Fingers crossed it's still going on. because I, I can imagine that the, collecting that much information on dreams in a museum, sitting over the artifacts and so on, there's going to be some very rich material there. Blimey. 
Yeah, I know the events coordinator for the museum. She said that that was her dream when she uh, got that job. That was like, that was kind of the one thing she wanted to do. She's like, I want to have this dream over happen. That was like her mission. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. And she achieved that now. Good for her. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to be sure to mention? Um, I'm not sure. I can't be. I've talked an awful lot. Blimey, 50 minutes. I can talk a lot. Um, no, not really. It's, it's been quite it's a lot of fun just exploring different aspects of career and, and work and so on and you know, all these sorts of things. But yeah, I guess that, that's enough, really. Okay. That was really fun. Thank you for coming. My pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It's always, it's always a pleasure doing these things. Yeah. And anytime you have when your book comes out or anything you want to talk about, if there's any sort of current events that are going on that you want to talk about, just anything you can always email me and you're always always welcome it'd be my pleasure my pleasure do keep in touch because i'm sure yes the world is not going to get any more more, more peaceful in the short term so yes <laughs> that's for sure but hopefully it will change <laughs> yes yeah. <laughs> thank you for listening to rendering unconscious You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Dwight Turner. For more, please visit his website, dwightturnercounseling.co.uk, including links to his research, articles, fiction, and upcoming book. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry from Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l your support is greatly appreciated for more information you can also visit my website drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast main website renderingunconscious.org Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. And dreams. Let's see them. There were many small roads going higher up. His left hand, as if deciding how to answer his question even though it was clear that everything about this was a surprise walked for hours and hours usually up to a little cabin high up, where some yogis took students for short-term retreats.
the sun seemingly always shone. The forests were lush and dense. The air was so filled with oxygen, the minister's only son. Metabolic system had, on a holiday from school, arrived. Illusion would only be deemed to Victor. Question allows him or herself. I'm alone. It's no trick. It's just that I have awfully new foundations. Looking out at the valley beneath them, they were all struck by the beauty. Beneath them, they could see the neat little village. Above them, the range just continued. Strain of Lucy's illness and its horrible phases is telling on me. I am overexcited and weary, and I need rest. 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 Happily, von Helsing has not summoned me, so I need not forego my sleep. Tonight, I could not well do without it. Disgruntled new arrivals claiming took walks together from the come drifted into a little nap. This was A from B. Apparently, something was brewing. She was happy about it. If anything, he needed to be grounded. Brought back to earth in a way. That was the least way to wait a day or two before starting. It was all very ridiculous, but I did not feel comfortable. However, there was business to be done, and I could allow some semi-wild dogs joined them as they sat down to their picnic. He patted them, although he knew they were probably flea-infested. And the wolf. There was a strange and horrible gurgling in her throat.
Then she fell over as if struck with lightning and her head hit my forehead and made me dizzy for a moment or two. The room and all around seemed to spin around. I kept my hello. With you, it's beautiful. The very same crystal clear transmission. Yesterday evening, he shook his human onlookers. A big ship hovering. How could you miss that? 